Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Elizabeth Bramson Budrow, the Chief Executive Officer and Publisher of MIT Technology Review. Elizabeth leads the growth, expansion, and modernization of the review's media platforms and products. Elizabeth also serves as the Chairman and President of MIT Enterprise Forum a nonprofit organization of the chapters worldwide. Prior to this role, Elizabeth was the global managing director of the Economist Corporate Network. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you, it's great to be here. You've had an exciting career. Uh, can you tell us more about your background and any defining moments that have shaped your career? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, thank you. It's great to be here and it's nice to be asked about, I mean, everyone likes to talk about themselves. Um, and, you know, I have had an interesting career. I've taken a, a number of different paths um, because of my interests, my interest growing and expanding as I learned about media, as I learned about technology. Um, I also took a time uh, early in my career, about 10, 15 years ago, to mostly be at home and to take care of two babies who are now teenagers. Uh, I took a bit of a, a side step or I started, worked as a consultant on a freelance basis uh, for about three years. Uh, so I have had quite a few iterations. Um, I think, you know, a defining moment for me, I mean, when I returned to, you know, the work world, I went to The Economist. I was living in the UK at the time in London um, in around 2010. Um, and I took on a, a position, kind of a corporate strategy role, um, long story as to how I got there, but I had had experience with that organization before in my career. Um, and I remember kind of trying, I was trying to sort of figure out sort of where was my career going to take me next and sort of where were my ambitions within media. Um, and I remember my manager, my boss at the time saying to me, um, how much he had, he, when he hired me, how much he really valued my ambition. Um, and I think the, that hearing that was uh, a bit surprising. Um, I don't think anyone ever, had ever seen that and told me they liked it. Um, and it was this sort of sense of giving me the permission to let it show that uh, left me feeling like just extremely energized and sort of ready to tackle what was next. And that was very shortly thereafter that I decided what I actually wanted to be doing was running a media company. Um, and so, you know, things led to, one thing led to another and here I am. So, so how, how did you end up uh, at the technology review? Yeah, so uh, we were in London for, uh, for six years and um, had gone there for my husband, is a, he did his PhD at MIT, and we went, uh, he's a business school professor, and we went a couple different places um, before we decided to return to the US um, in order for him to sort of take, on, take the next step in his academic career. And as you probably know, academia is, um, it's, it, it's a little different from uh, other industries in that you know, there aren't there aren't that many places one can live and certainly the Boston area is one of them um, and it was coming back home we had been here when you know he was doing his PhD uh, my family's here so we decided to come back to the U to the US um, 
And I, I tried to decide, you know, did I want to stay in media? There's not a lot of media in the Boston area. Or did I want to do other things uh, when the opportunity at MIT Technology Review came up to me? Um, and it just seemed so intriguing. Um, at that point in time, MIT had, had taken a decision probably a year prior to uh, engage in an expansion and growth strategy around that brand, the, the business. And they needed some, um, you know, uh, executive leadership, which is how I came to uh, to introduce myself to them, and you know, ended up there. That's great. So yeah. there, there is an ongoing surge uh, of media consumption since the pandemic uh, began, with people around the globe trying to stay updated uh, on, on the crisis, on the impacts of the crisis. So how do you see the consumption of information changing in this context? Uh, and has the role of technology changed? Uh, you know, and also I see that there's a rise of intermediaries uh, that, that are trying to personalize news like Apple News. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so so how, how do you see this ecosystem evolving? Well, it is very, um, it is an ecosystem that is evolving quickly and has changed quite a bit since you know, I've been, uh, I've been certainly since I've been in this this role. But of course, you look longer, ten years back, let's say, tremendously different than what it once was. Um, and it's an industry that's because of the the disintermediation and the in, in the existence of platforms, be they Apple News, like you mentioned, or Facebook or uh, Twitter, or other ways that people experience or or come upon content, has been quite challenging for media companies. Um, but just to talk about the pandemic quickly, because I think it, 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 it's an interesting um, case example. So back in March, uh, when, you know, everything kind of exploded uh, in terms of, you know, the realization that we were in a pandemic, uh, there was a massive, massive spike that we experienced and a lot of other media brands besides experienced in our traffic. I mean, it just went from kind of a, a where, where we had been steadily rising to spiking up two and a half times um, because everybody, I'm sure you included, was at home thinking, what the heck is going on? I need to get content, you know, I need to get information. I need to know what's new. And I mean, you probably remember those days. We were just constantly reading, what is this? Where, where is this going to end? What does it really mean? Am I in danger? Are we gonna run out of, you know, toilet paper? All of that, right? Um, and then once, you know, sort of April and May came, things started to fall back. And I think for media companies like MIT Technology Review, the challenge then shifted to being, what is our story? What is our way of understanding what's going on in this, in this crisis moment? Um, and how can we help our readers understand it from the lens of the insights that we have uh, from uh, biomedicine and the developments of the mRNA vaccines, for instance, and how can we help people understand what they should be um, bearing in mind? So we've then sort of adapted our, our approach. We were like everybody else back in March writing everything. And then it became everyone's competing for the same story. So we really needed to think just more strategically. And I think that's a real, you know, microcosm or that's an episodic example of what's happened in media. If you are able to, you know, scroll Twitter and then click on stories here, there and anywhere, um, instead of what we once did was you'd go to a website and you probably remember you would go to HuffingtonPost.com or WallStreetJournal.com. You don't do that so much anymore. You discover the stories in various other ways. It's therefore all the more important is if you see the stories published by the Times, by the, the New Yorker, by whoever, why are you gonna pick MIT Tech Review? We need to be sure that's always clear. 
Um, and that's really where we lean hard on what makes us special and unique, which is our connection to the, you know, the ecosystem that MIT uh, sits at the center of. So staying with this context of um, social platforms, other intermediaries being the channels uh, for, for these uh, periodicals or news sites, um, how does the business model evolve uh, in that context? Uh, I'm sure you've had to uh, innovate on your business model. What are some of the considerations you've had uh, about implementing paywalls or subscriptions? Um, because uh, if, if I can uh, subscribe to Apple News or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to get it there anyhow, or, uh, you know, do, do I really want to subscribe to one sing single publication? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how, how do you think about those kind of challenges? Well, it's, uh, I was, uh, uh, to be very honest with you, I think it's an evolving, um, it's an evolving strategy as good strategy should be, right? Um, the way we think about it today, specifically to Apple News, for instance, um, we have a certain set of our stories that we will publish that anyone can read and kind of stumble upon on Apple News. And then we also have some that if you see it, you can't actually read it. You have, you can see that it's there, you know what it's about. Maybe you see just a stump of it, but then you have to come back to our site to actually read it, where we will serve you with a, you know, a couple of stories until you encounter our paywall. Um, like most good media companies today, we are trying to drive people to become subscribers. Uh, we, we believe you should pay for content. You always did pay for content back in the days of print. Uh, this idea that, you know, content is free that came with the internet. I think we know that it's not quite so free um, now that we understand a little bit better the way we've paid um, as a, as a, as a eyeball for an advertiser, or maybe you could argue societally. Um, so what we have to then do is give you a reason to choose MIT Technology Review because we know that you're gonna get tired of all the subscriptions. We know there's a limit to how many subscriptions any you know, um, sensible person is gonna have. Um, so again, we need to think really smartly about what is it about what we do that is unique and valuable. And again, I think we think that's about really good insights into the technology, how, where it's coming from, what it's going to do, where it's going next, how it could have an impact across the, uh, you know, the way you work, the way you live, a society as a whole. Um, and that's something that we feel we have authority and credibility and you know, real insight um, to talk about because of our, uh, you know, our, our, our team, which is you know, people who come to work for us and with us because they value that, those insights, because they want to be in conversations with MIT scholars or scholars at sort of MIT level institutions, um, private sector, et cetera. Um, and know that they can bring that to life in the journalism we create. Does uh, a print version still have currency? Uh, and not just your periodical, what I'm talking generally, right? I mean, uh, does anyone still read a print version of a periodical? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and here's the way we think about print. So, First of all, one of the things we did about three and a half, four years ago was we changed the way we thought about our print magazine. Rather than print being a, you know, whatever was published on the web being, you know, put into a print format, we moved to a thematic approach. 
So each of our print issues, it has, it has a single theme. So we've done the AI issue, we did the China issue, we just did an issue that's uh, our new issue now is called the progress issue. Um, you know, any that we did the last issue before that was the food issue, all about innovations in food technology and supply chains, etc. Um, so we tackle a topic and look at it from kind of all directions in print. Um, and the, the, the thinking behind that is that the constant flow of the news cycle is much better suited to digital, but to concentrate an entire topic, there's something much more immersive about that, something that really does lend itself nicely to sitting back in the chair with the cup of tea next to you and, and reading like we did, right? Once upon a time, you wouldn't really wanna do that with a bunch of news articles today because they would have been, you know, they would have been, you would have lost the moment that uh, out of which they were, they were born. So we think that having the two as a complement to one another is actually the best way forward. We are seeing that in the commercial results that when people become subscribers to Technology Review, although they can choose to be a print only, excuse me, they can choose to be a digital only subscriber or they can be a print plus digital subscriber. They can no longer be a pr print only subscriber, but if they choose to, they can choose between digital only or print plus digital, more of them are choosing print plus digital. And I think there is a value you know, that's understood there that having the two together is really quite compelling. How many people, when they have that issue in their hands, read, read the article there versus on their screens? I can't say. Personally, by the time I get my print copy of MIT Technology Review, I have already read those stories in the digital format of that magazine issue. Um, but maybe I'm impatient. Maybe I don't sit, sit down with a, in an armchair with a cup of tea enough. Um, I think it depends on one's life. I think there's all kinds of usage, usage habits according to you know, age and lifestyle, et cetera, that probably bear, um, you know, that probably are insignificant in that. But for the foreseeable future, we will continue to do both um, because we see value there. It makes a lot of sense. I think that the thematic approach uh, does have a lot of value. Yeah, yeah. So thanks to the political discourse in this country, even our most credible media has been under attack. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation about so-called fake news, biases, and other media myths that impact the media's credibility today. So how do you operate in this kind of environment and what steps are you taking to maintain the trust of your readers? Yes, it's a really timely, important question. Um, I think uh, the, the best answer I can give you is to tell you kind of the, the way that the editorial team operates. So they are, uh, you know, dedicated tech and science journalists who have spent, you know, who have come to technology review having built careers elsewhere. Uh, we certainly do have junior journalists, but generally speaking that our journalist team there, this is not their first journalist job most of the time. Uh, so they developed a reputation for, for excellence elsewhere. Um, and, you know, they are constantly in consultation with people who are experts in whatever that particular article topic is about. Um, either people that they interview and quote, or people that they kind of seek counsel from. And that, again, that's a place where the MIT relationships come become very, very useful. Um, so what we're trying to do is do objective reporting and about a technology and the potential outcomes that that technology can have on society, uh, even inconvenient truths. 
Um, and what we're trying to do as a, as a brand, or I would say as a platform, is to foster conversation. Um, so to say, you know, this is what we believe is going to be the impact of the mRNA vaccine um, uh, technique across not only the COVID-19 uh, virus vaccines, but you know, the, the fighting and the challenging of, uh, of diseases of all sorts. We think that's, and here's why we think that, um, but we're very interested in, 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 in framing the conversation in a way that people can debate you know, informed people can debate based upon good research and good reporting. Um, so I think that um, the whole kind of, uh, I guess the whole rationale around or sort of the motivation perhaps around MIT Technology Review is that, you know, it used to be uh, once upon a time, not that long ago, that it was like technology is gonna save the world. It's gonna be so great. Everything's gonna be awesome. Um, and it was lots of techno optimism and lots of Silicon Valley adulation that was you would read in journalism. Um, I think we are firmly of the belief that it is not necessarily the case that those things will occur, uh, that technology will make a better world. I mean, certainly you can look at the last you know four or five years and you can say, well, golly, that didn't happen. Um, things are kind of rough right now. Uh, if you're a, um, if you know if you're if you're you, you're sick or someone you care about has gotten sick from this virus. If you've got, if you're concerned about fires or or freezes in, uh, you know, weather extreme weather events, if you're concerned about dis misinformation and you know the the problems of 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 you know corrupt elections, you know anywhere, not just in the United States but around the world, you can understand that's no longer the case that. Um, you know, this accepted truth about technology is that is automatically going to be for the good. And so what we're trying to do is really call that sort of assumptions and the powerful people behind them, um, call the question um, and get the conversation going so that we can make smarter decisions as a society. I think, you know, the general, you know, I don't think we think that people are bad. People want, everyone wants to have a good world. So let's be sure we're thinking intelligently about how, um, how to make sure we do so. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy talent cloud platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expropy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expropy.com for more information. What does the media landscape look like in the next uh, three to five years? You, you see AI and algorithms becoming major producers and curators of news in the future? Major, I would say no. Um, minor, I would say yes. I think it's already happening. You have certain places where um, you know, structured data things about financial markets or sports or other things like that. You, you're, already, you're already seeing those um, AI created content uh, there. But in terms of you know, really important, insightful 
articles and journalistic uh, reported stories. I don't think so. I don't see that for the foreseeable future. I will say though, that in terms of the sort of competitive landscape, um, I think there's a big, there's a big shakeup that we've already been through and there's more to come uh, there. Can you talk about that shakeup? What have you seen? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, as I kind of alluded to earlier, this idea that, um, you know, each of, you know, there is a fatigue or, or there's an expectation that there will be a fatigue amongst consumers who aren't going to want to have a huge number of subscriptions, digital or digital in print or whatever, uh, to media outlets. Um, I do think that more and more you will see the large publishers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Bloomberg, you will see them become more and more dominant because they will begin to build out coverage in a whole bunch of different topics. So, you know, it used to be the New York Times would cover business and it might be a slight technology, couple of technology articles in the business section, right? Now they have a full-fledged tech team. I think they'll build that out as tech continues to, you know, build out. Um, I think, you know, the same is true of other places like uh, the Washington, the, the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal has developed a quite a big arts and lifestyle. And I think these companies will continue to try to build it so that when you take a decision about what you want in your subscription to your home, uh, you for sure start with one of those guys. And I think that's going to be problematic for people like Technology Review, who are the tech-only titles, um, because maybe I get as much as I need from the from the New York Times. Maybe I don't need any more, and therefore it's all the more important for MIT Technology Review to figure out how to position our content and how to really dig deeper into what you cannot get from the New York Times. And that's really about the kind of the deep tech and the the hard tech. Um, and the understanding of what's coming out of labs, what's being developed in R&D centers, uh, which isn't the kind of reporting that at least at this point, and I probably won't ever be the kind of reporting that the New York Times will lean in on. Tell us about uh, a day in the life of uh, a CEO of a major uh, publication. And has that role evolved uh, since the time you've been working in the field? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it has. It's quite interesting because um, certainly the day in the life of a CEO of a, of a company like MIT Technology Review looks different today than it did one year ago today. Um, and as it does for you as well and, and many other people besides. Uh, you know, so this is my office. This is also the, you know, an extra bedroom in my home. Um, and, you know, I no longer go into the office and have that whole uh, experience that I, you know, I miss very much. Uh, we're on Zoom, et cetera. Um, but in terms of, of, you know, even pre-pandemic and, and of course through the pandemic, how the role has changed. I mean, we've been spending a lot of time over this digital transformation that is, um, you know, we are about three plus years into. Uh, trying to deeply understand our audience in a way that I think isn't, wasn't necessary a decade ago. Um, so when you're largely serving people through a print product, uh, you know, you kind of create it and send it out, right? You don't know who's reading what. You don't know how much time they spent on this article versus that article. We have a lot more insight and therefore, you know, it's a, it's a lot more work to dig through what how much time did you spend on that article or which ones did you not read at all um, out of a, you know, a, a collection of articles, for example. 
um, or uh, once you read that article, did you leave us or did you, you know, continue to read across a whole bunch of different topics or did you go more deeply down the AI path or the robotics or the biomedicine or whatever it might be? And what does that tell us about you? Um, similarly, when you came to us, did you come to us through one of our newsletters or through social, uh, you know, social media? Uh, so there's a lot more that allows us to be more strategic and and uh, and deliberate about how we find more readers and how we keep the readers happy and uh, what kind of products we expand with and so forth. We didn't do podcasts, you know, we only started podcasts about two years ago. We have a fantastic set of podcasts today, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it is, it is a much more, I would say it's a more interesting job. Um, but I can't, you know, I'm sure there's, there's elements of the, of the previous way of doing things that, um, you know, that I, I would have enjoyed too. You, you mentioned uh, having to understand your audience. Uh, so tell us, tell us about your audience and the ways in which you are serving that audience. So, yeah, so we have, um, so we have an audience of, of people that numbers about four and a half to 5 million per month that come to uh, our site. Uh, again, they come from a bunch of different places. They come to us directly because they know our brand and that's a bit unique because we have the MIT name. It's a bit unique in media, I, I, I mean. Um, they come to us because they're, they subscribe to one of our email newsletters that shows up in their email box uh, or through social media. Um, or you know they uh, they may get referred to us by um, maybe referral traffic that comes from another you know another another media company that's that links to an article that we've written or so and so um, you know comes and reads us. So our digital audience is quite large and in general is in that really lovely spot of about twenty five to forty five years of age. Uh, they are technology interested, of course. They are uh, upwardly mobile, as you can see from kind of their age and their income level, because we have some good analytics that tells us that. Um, and generally speaking, they are trying to, they're coming to us because they're looking for really good insights into where these emerging technologies are going. And that's a part of a belief that tech is a part of their, their professional futures. Now our print audience is older. Uh, and that's consistent again across uh, media companies. Our print audience is around the 45 to 65 years of age. Um, so folks who um, have achieved a little bit more in their career by virtue of age and, you know, et cetera, um, and have a, you know, a larger household income and more business responsibility and so forth. So what's interesting for us is how we can uh, try to serve them differently with different products. And so that's what we're spending a lot of time thinking about is how to enhance um, the products that we can direct at those two um, types of general types of, uh, of readers. And, and when, when it comes to prioritizing content, categorizing content, uh, what, what are the, the kind of things that go, or what are the considerations that, uh, that go into doing that? Uh, uh, so, so is, is it, um, what I'm really getting at is, 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 is it based on, customer interest uh, or, or is, is it, uh, you know, based on your own mission? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, so I think for us, when we, when we, um, because we, when we publish our content, generally speaking, we publish it across all of our platforms. So 
there'll be, a, let's say we write a story about a particular, I don't know, a story about a particular technology. Um, we will we will we will release it across all of our platforms, except perhaps print, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but there will be variations in how we release it. Uh, so, for example, if it's a if it's if we want to release it on Twitter, we might do if it's a long story that merits this, we might do a thread, might do a Twitter thread that kind of teases out the uh, some of the big insights that are found in that article to give people a chance to get a little bit more insight into it before they dive in. Um, because we also know that threads also get a lot of interest amongst twi a Twitter audience. Or if it's on Instagram, we'll really showcase the art, the design work that goes into that to that digital or, or um, digital or, or print story. Um, and we'll make sure that um, you know that that art is is front and center and it's you know shown to best uh, to best use. Um, you know, if it's one of our podcasts, you know, we have a wonderful podcast called In Machines We Trust. Um, where we did recently a, a real dig into um, facial recognition and the challenges of facial recognition, problems of facial recognition technology for law enforcement. Um, and you know that each of those episodes could be an article. Um, so we'll, we will share it through you know, our various platforms, but we're driving people to go and actually listen because that's when you're gonna get it at its full, you know, sort of multimedia experience. Um, so we're, we're thinking about where we're going to find the audience and what mode that individual will be in when he or she is on Twitter versus Instagram versus podcasts versus, uh, you know, uh, on their you know, desktop versus laptop with mobile. We're thinking about the way that that person is going to be living their life. And we're trying to make it as easy for them to, um, to get engaged with it. So you, you are uh, grappling with a wide range of topics, um, societal, political, commercial impacts of technology, seeing how technology is evolving. What, what are the trends that you see that would impact societies from a macro perspective in, in the future? Oh yeah, well, so you happen to ask me that question in the right week, actually, uh, because earlier this week we released uh, MIT Technology Review every year for the last 20 years has done a annual list of the 10 breakthrough technologies, the 10 technologies that we think are going to have the greatest impact in, in our lives. And so you can go back over the 10 years, or excuse me, the 20 years, and you can see you know, what we got right, what we didn't get right. Um, and it's been very, very interesting because, because it's the 20th year, we did do a bit of an essay kind of analyzing the last 20 years. But this, you know, this list, this year's list, um, there's 10 of them, and I'm not going to be the best person to explain all 10. Um, but there are three that I think are really interesting in that I might name here. Uh, two of them really involve how artificial intelligence is in, is emerging or is evolving. Uh, one of them is GPT-3, which is the um, ability of, of AI to uh, transform linguistic text, uh, create linguistic text by pulling together a whole bunch of linguistic text from, you know, any number of different sources, kind of like a kind of like a, a scrapbook um, and it can really fool uh, humans uh, into thinking it's actually a human being um, creating these uh, these uh, pieces of these pieces of text that's going to be very transformative in doing things like responding to customer service queries um, but also it can do coding and things like that um, like other technologies and AI uh, in, um, use cases it has a dark a potential dark side that has to be watched carefully there's a um, there was an example of this particular technology being released in a bot on Reddit 
and it was, you know, giving advice, psychological advice to, uh, uh, to people. It happened to be decent advice, but even so you have to be careful, right? Because it's, it's sort of garbage in garbage out. Uh, if you aren't, uh, if you don't have someone kind of monitoring and being smart about how the algorithm de develops. So I think there's a lot of attention going into that. Um, I don't mean to suggest there isn't, uh, but we do see the technology as being, you know, potentially highly impactful. Another one is also the AI related, and it's the combination of different modes of artificial intelligence. So both uh, linguistic and sensory uh, being, being able to work together, whereas previously, you, know, you could go way down a path on one or the other of those, but bringing them together will enable, you know, better robotics, um, robotics that can respond to um, I don't know, uh, uh, environmental stresses like wind, a windy day or a sunny day or a rainy day or whatever. Um, and, you know, this idea that, um, you know, that, that the, the input of the data could be taken from a bunch of different ways, not only one mode or, or another, again, super transformative. I think, um, you know, I think, you know, again, all around AI, we're spending a lot of journalistic energy looking at the potential darker sides. Um, so I don't mean, to, again, to sound like I'm like, oh, it's all going to be great. I think, you know, I think it is clearly an evolution towards uh, things that could be wonderful and need to be uh, thought about in a considered way. Um, and then I think a third one um, is the uh, development of battery technologies, uh, lithium metal battery technologies that can be transformative or will be transformative um, because they have a much uh, larger battery range. So the challenge with with uh, with uh, battery technologies on electric vehicles now is that the range isn't that far. So you can go like 250 miles on your car. So this lithium metal battery technology, which I certainly can't explain to you, uh, but I did read the article uh, that we just published on it, but it, trans it, will, it will expand that life from about, again, 250 miles to like 450 miles. So you could really imagine being able to go much longer distances and if we see that roll out across the electric vehicle industry, you know, we really will be talking about being able to do a lot more replacement of, um, of uh, fossil fuel, you know, uh, driven vehicles, gasoline. That's fascinating. Diesel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exciting. I mean, these are the kinds of things that, um, I, you know, I, I don't know about them until I read them in MIT Tech Review. Um, and it's, uh, I'm very lucky. Any parting words for our audience? Um, I would say, you know, and I, I often say this uh, to people who don't necessarily know the ins and outs of media. Um, you know, like most people, you know, read articles here and there, have a few subscriptions. I mean, I think, uh, I guess my final parting word would be, please, you know, whatever your media choices, whether you want to work, whether, whether you want to read MIT Technology Review or someone else, it's fine, but please, please pay for your media, <laughs> support journalism. Uh, I think the world we live in um, will only be better if we have a functioning journalistic media industry. Um, and that requires that we no longer think of uh, content as something that I should get for free on the internet, because uh, you're gonna get free content, it's not gonna be good content. The stuff you pay for is, you know, has to pay salaries of, of writers and, uh, and editors. Um, so I guess that my final parting, parting words would be to please pay for content. No, that's that. I totally endorse what you're saying. Very, very important to support journalistic activity. Absolutely. I think that's the world we want to live in. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. It's been such a pleasure.
Thank you. Likewise. I appreciate it.